Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Interlibrary Law. Today, we are discussing the second section of Letters from Zettelgem, being the 10th section out of an 11 total sections of Cloud Atlas. Before we get started, I'd like to take a brief moment and apologize for the delay in last week's episode. That was entirely on my behalf and the fact that I optimistically overextended myself at work on a number of projects and the only way I could find time was by rearranging the entirety of my life. So I appreciate your patience with us and uh, promise that that will not happen again. Um, So as always, we're going to quickly catch up on last week's reading and follow that up with a quick recap of the first half of Letters from Zettelgum. So Katie Sky, we didn't really talk about this. Who should help? Who should helm who? I feel like I'm overdue for one, but which one do you want me to do? I'm not doing one this week. You guys are on your own. All right, <laughs> Katie, do you want to talk about Louisa from last week or Robisher from the first half? Robisher, Robisher, uh, Robisher. Who is Robisher? <laughs> the ravaging Robisher, terror of. London. Oh my god! So for those of you who carry over from talking Tolkien, I have a really bad history of leading names together, which is how Perry the Hobbit became some headcanon of ours. Right. And it was everyone's favorite. Um, I, I'll take a crack at Louisa Ray. It's been a, a while since I've read it, though, so I, I'm going to do my best. Um, okay, okay I, so. I, I deserve, I deserve that. <laughs> uh, we finished last last week, or well, not last week, but last uh, last time. Keep in mind, we... guys, this episode dropped like two days ago. So for our listeners, it's like a couple days ago. Oh, that's right. Well, okay. Uh, the delay was last on me. time on the ILL bookcast <laughs> program. The delay was we on me up. in editing and not me in recording. <laughs> we caught up again uh, with Louisa Ray and we meet her in the water. She, where she had just plummeted in her car and uh, she is struggling to free herself and in the, in, in the process loses the precious uh six smith file and uh let's see what else happens oh she gets her hands on a copy of the of, of frobisher's cloud atlas sextet and strangely enough notices uh that she's familiar with this music even though she's never heard it before so that was an interesting bit let's see um she uh, she is still trying to dig into this mystery and she gets a, a tip from basically Bill Smoke kind of gets her to show up at this power plant uh, with with the hopes of getting her hands on another copy of Rufus Sixsmith's report. Um, and it, was, it was a bank. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, at the <laughs> bank. And there's this big, huge explosion. And uh, Smoke and Napier have, like, a shootout. And it's pretty exciting. And eventually, she does manage to expose this nastiness that has gone on. And um, she... Oh, she meets up with Six Smith's niece, and she gives uh, gives ends up giving Louisa uh, the last eight of Frobisher's letters to Six Smith. So that's how Louisa Ray uh, gets to read the last half of Frobisher's story, and as well how we get to read it. And uh, as we're about to discuss it, 
But before we get there, what happens in the first half? Well, we meet Robert Frobisher, who we quickly discern is a very, very pretentious, very foolhardy, very intelligent young composer who is in love with Six Smith, a, a man we later discover is a nuclear physicist. And um, so Frobisher has been kicked out of his family house, the Frobishery, as he calls it. Uh, his, his parents are to do. They're members of the landed gentry. And Robert himself has no money and is on the run. Um, so he concocts this plan where he runs away to Belgium and kind of smooth talks his way into the house of Vivian Ayres, a great English composer who is kind of slowly crumbling of Sisyphus. Syphilis. Yeah, my mom. Slowly crumbling of syphilis. Um, that was fun. Yeah, he kind of slowly Dude's got syphilis. Yes, apparently, so do I. Um, he kind of inserts. Wait, is that a symptom of syphilis? I do not believe that's a symptom of neurosyphilis. Regardless, he inserts okay. himself into Vivian's family life, uh, starts a an affair with his wife, and slowly kind of forms this very brilliant, very effective, but also very exploitative musical relationship with Vivian. Uh, and that's more or less the last time we see Robert, um, although we also discover that he has found a book called The Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. However, he only has access to the first half of this book. So, does that sound about right? Did I miss anything important? A lot did, of, you talk about, did you talk about Eva at all? Eva is the daughter of Vivian and Yocasta. Um, and Robert finds her kind of insufferable. She's 15 and in school and her horse is named Nefertiti. And there were a lot of references to antique queens and, and that first section. Yeah, that's true. Are there no references to antique queens in this section? I don't think I noticed any of them. Oh, I don't think I did either. I mean, in some ways, you might say that Frobisher himself is an antique queen. Har har. <laughs> All right. All right, then. Um, but, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that this book does is it uses the chisor between the different sections of the novel to like have you know patterns and motifs go in and out so some motifs recur throughout both sections and then others just don't unless we're missing some antique queens but I don't I really don't think there are any in this section well I mean the only thing that I noticed is something that was in the first section as well the name of the ship that carried Frobisher from England to Belgium is named the Kentish Queen so oh, that's I, fun. I don't know if that's a reference to a specific Kentish queen, but obviously it's an indication of queens. But it also says um, very near towards the end of this section that Eva wants to become an Egyptologist, which would, one, explain right. the name Nefertiti of her horse, but two, also reminded me directly of Marinem. Oh, hmm. also Eva wants to, or Eva fancies herself the Empress of Bruges. There is that passage. Oh, that is true. Um, so that passage is kind of playing so, the, the Queen's theme. But so we've moved from kind of explicit reference, though, to more, um, I don't know, just, just, just kind of a more general. Intimation. Like we don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't have specific names, really. Well, I mean, this actually draws back to a point that you made, 
quite beautifully last episode, Katie, which I hadn't even thought of until you mentioned it. But that's like the number of kind of plot and logical inconsistencies between the first and second halves of Louisa Ray. And unlike Sky, you know, just said, like, one of the interesting things about this book is that you get to kind of visit themes in one section of the narrative and not revisit them in the latter section because those themes might have been, like, shunted to a different closing narrative or something. Right. Uh, regardless, let's actually get into what happens. Yeah. So we begin with Dr. Egret or D. Regret. Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> I was going to say, what? what is an egret? An egret is a bird. Uh, who is a doctor that we've met already who is named for a bird? Oh, snap. Uh, oh, it's the oh. goose. Yeah, Dr. Doctor Goose. Dr. Henry Goose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then... What is it with these bird doctors? <laughs> well, and so then... <laughs> what, what is this what with these creepy says, bird doctors? Never met a quack whom I didn't half suspect of plotting to do me in as expensively as he could contrive. Regardless, Vivian is in a um in a state. Yeah. He is he is in a state. He is in he is incapacitated and in bed. And so Frobisher, of course, is going to capitalize on this time to do some composing of his own instead of being heirs uh Amenuensis. Yes. <laughs> that was the word. Um and what I found interesting though is the first thing that happens is he arranges to go on a countryside visit. Um, to the cemetery where he believes his older brother Adrian is interred. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember any references to Adrian in the first section at all. I didn't either, which was why I felt um, and and while yes, it's been some time removed from reading the first half, but I almost for a moment thought, did I miss something? Also, also, we no longer have references to ancient queens. Instead, we have a reference to a Roman emperor. Um, which then goes into play with the Empress of Belgium. I mean, I- sorry, Empress of Bruges narrative. Like, we're transitioning from queens to imperator. Uh, regardless, what I found interesting is he goes on a, you know, this, this day trip with Morty Daunt, a jewel vendor, and he says, Daunt drives a 1927 Bugatti Royale, blah, 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 goes like a Grease Devil, you know, 50 on the highway, like, talking about this car but then later on also he is sent a car to be picked up by the family that the Vandeveld family that Eva lives with in the city and it says a silver Mercedes-Benz thank you very much so we have two different sections in this where he's talking explicitly about the make of the car this really reminded me of Sanmi 451 where all cars are referred to as Fords this kind of lowercase f um, contrasting the use of like a trademark there. We, we've also got some other in the novel, some other specific cars. We've got Luisa Ray's Volkswagen Beetle named Garcia. Yeah, Garcia. And then we've got uh, Timothy Cavendish's commandeered la- red Land Rover. Yes. Mm. Um, but he also says, cause you know, they're, now they're driving through kind of the former front of Belgium. And he says, the few trees still standing here and there are when you touch them, lifeless charcoal. One dot, dot, dot. One cannot pass by without thinking of the density of men in the ground. Any moment, the order to charge would be given, an inf- infantryman well up from the earth, brushing off the powdery soil. The 13 years since armistice seemed only as many hours. So, like, the way he was just describing the dead land and describing, like, war here 
really also reminded me of both Sanmi and then um, an aura, uh, Solution's Cross and then everything after. Just kind of this inevitability of war or this kind of scorched earth nature to it. Yes, this is a very uh, this is a very Nietzschean passage within in a section full of Nietzschean passages. <laughs> indeed, um, indeed, because we get that, and then we also get like this inevitability of war and the inevitability of mankind to destroy itself um, by using, you know, it, it's he it talks about science and advancement. Uh, just simply presenting itself to be a vehicle for destruction for mankind, which of course is as as we know from having seen this the 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 end story of the book uh, is the ultimate fate of our comet soul. But um, yeah, bleak. And then, as it turns out, this was not the correct cemetery. So he just kind of ponders on the unknowability of his brother's fate. Uh, and then in leaving, it says Morty Daunt, uh, who loved to, you know, drive his car as quickly as possible. They were just kind of blaring down this straight lane and an event happened that has happened quite a number of times. <laughs> There's a car crash. And at first it says a form like a running mad woman ran out smack in front of us. She hit the windscreen and spun over our heads. So... It very much sounds like they've killed a human. As it turns mm-hmm. out, they just ran into a bird. And the car was not, like, terribly damaged, but they do have to, like, stop for a mechanic. But, you know, how many times now has, has there been, like, a crash of some sort? Several. Yes. The first crash we get, perhaps, is the violent crash of the Spaniard hitting the deck of the prophetess. <laughs> And the most recent crash, I guess, is Louisa Ray going off of the dock or the bridge. Yeah. yeah. Many crashes. So Sixsmith puts the bird out of its misery, kind of makes a point to be doing that. Frobisher, you mean. Oh, did I say Sixsmith? Yeah. <laughs> Ugh, I, I don't know what it is about mine. Oh, and then, he well, he has a chat with Morty Daunt and is like, oh, where did you spend the war in Bruges? And Morty Daunt is like, no, I was in Johannesburg. You could always see wars coming and, you know. It, it's smart to, to to leave when you see it on the horizon. So just another kind of drop in the sea of inevitability of war. This section, or the last section of Frobisher that we'd read, Frobisher says of the Journal of Adam Ewing that a half-finished book is like a half-finished love affair. And we are reintroduced to his love affair with Jocasta, uh, Ayers' wife. Um, but it seems to be pretty finished at this point. Also, what I find interesting is... When he's talking about this, he says Ayers is still in his kind of syphilitic nadir, nadir and said that the, the doctor comes by every day, but the only thing he really can do is prescribe ever bigger doses of morphine. And this really reminded me of, of Sanmi as well, just given the fact that like the soap was specifically designed to like keep them at bay subdue them yeah exactly like you know it's just like a kind of a sly reference to the use of that yeah and in uh timothy cavendish timothy cavendish is uh is like drugged in order to to keep him compliant and adam ewing is being drugged by henry goose to keep him compliant oh snap or at least that's not technically something we know but frobisher as much as said when he was reading it that 
he's being poisoned. Um, it's almost like there are always external forces that are working to keep us under subdued. Control. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, all we get here then is Yocasta bound to prone to bouts of despondency. Some night she just clings to me as if I'm her life belt and she's drowning. Feel sorry for the woman, but I'm interested in her body, not her problems. Was. That, that's it. So we spent so much time in the first half and like next to nothing wrapping this up. But what we do get is he's obsessed with creating what he calls sextet for overlapping soloists. Piano, clarinet, cello, flute, oboe, violin, each in its own language of key, scale, and color. In the first set, each solo is interrupted by its successor. In the second, each interruption is recontinued in order. Revolution or gimmicky? Shan't know until it's finished. By then, it'll be too late, but it's the first thing I think of when I wake and the last thing I think of before I fall asleep. Aw, this is about David Mitchell writing Cloud Atlas. It is. And I like that Mitchell is asking us, is this revolutionary or gimmicky? <laughs> yeah, I, it, that's, that is true. That's like this meta joke about his own work. Well, okay, so I have to ask you two then as, as virgin readers of the text, is this revolutionary or is this gimmicky? I mean... I, I feel like you could make an argument for both. Uh, and there are certainly moments throughout this entire narrative that you, you, you kind of sit and you go, come on, come on now. But at the same time, Mitchell pokes fun at it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm honestly, I find it a little bit of both. I, I really think it's, I think it has its brilliance. It really does. Um, but it's certainly not without a little bit of gimmick. But really, I, what isn't? I think that like, if the novel weren't so damn good, it would be really gimmicky. Yeah. But it's sort of like unimaginably high, consistently high quality. And also it's sort of refusal to be neat and tidy in its gimmickiness uh, saves it from from gimmickiness. I mean, to that end, I, come with, I, I almost feel the same way as I do about Tolkien. Like, a lot of fantasy tries to establish that kind of world and it fails because all it cares about is creating like a depth but there's no richness to the depth but Tolkien succeeds so much because everything you encounter it's not like oh and this is the princess of blah 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 it's not just invented to feel like there's a world like as you learn more and more and more and more of it everything you see is related to something else in some tiny tiny way but knowing that connection really, really expands your understanding of the text as is. So, yeah, I mean, high fantasy can be a gimmick. And this kind of interconnectedness or whatever can be a gimmick. But I think in both cases, they're doing something. They're, they're showing that the gimmick can be revolutionary. Yeah, I think, like, Tolkien defies the gimmick of genre by its quality just as... Cloud Atlas defies the gimmick of structure by its quality. Yeah, I well, would agree. Well put. I believe that's the uh, thesis statement of this section of our podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, back, back to the plot. Well, Eva is back from Switzerland, and she has transformed from an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan in the eyes of one Mr. Robert Frobisher, who it should be said is banging her mom. Well, but I mean, at the same time, there's so much that's happening because Frobisher hates heirs more and more and more. 
And after Ayers kind of gets better from his syphilitic bout, they have a huge argument because Frobisher accuses Ayers of plagiarizing him. And Ayers basically says, like, you made something okay, or you had, like, an idea, and I turned it, I, I polished it, I made it be, like, final. And also, you said I was, like, this great genius, blah, 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 now you've changed your mind, so I think you need to look back at what you first said when you came here. So, like, as this wedge is being driven between Ayers and Frobisher, and Frobisher feels like Ayers is just stealing from him, and at the same time, as Frobisher feels like he's over his relationship with Yocasta and, like, feels nothing for her anymore, that's when all of his attention is moving on to Eva. Yeah, that's true. Um, in this in this section, I feel like I most associated uh, Robert Frobisher with Zachary from the Slush's Crossing story um, because both of them are idiots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Like they're the they're the hero and they're telling the story and they're make, trying to make it sound like they're the coolest dudes, but they're idiots. And but that's an, I don't know. What do you guys think of uh, Ayers and and Frobisher's uh, falling out throughout this section? Is like are either of them right and the other is wrong? Do they both have valid points? Uh, I'm not sure how I feel. Oh, I think they both have this. valid points. Frobisher rightly feels like he's not getting enough credit but at the end of the day that's how these things work and he's being impatient and Ayers feels that he's doing this great service to Frobisher by you know allowing him the honor of yeah of working with the great Vivian Ayers and even if he's not getting you know public exposure he's getting like something he can put on his resume that then will turn into the kind of connection that he needs I also get a sense that Ayers is a little jealous of Frobisher, not just of Frobisher and his wife, because he's hinted at that a number of times, but at Frobisher's kind of musical capabilities. Right. Um, yes. And Frobisher's youth. I mean, just in general, probably. Right. True. Yeah. And at one point, it is arranged for Frobisher to visit the family that Eva stays in stays with in Bruges during the weekend. I mean, the weekdays when she's at school, the Vandevelds who have six daughters and they want them. Oh to, my God, this section, they want them to meet a true Englishman so they can practice their English. And I love this. He, he describes them. He says the VDV daughters, a hydra of heads named Marie Louise, Stephanie, Zenob, Alphonsine. And I forget the last range from <laughs> nine years of age to said Marie Louise one year, Eva's senior. So, here we get it. Another reference to Hydra. Mm -hmm. They like line up on the stairs in ascending order of age and then sing green sleeves to him in English. This is like some ridiculous like Von Trapp shit. I was just going to say this is straight out of the sound of music. But also he's using this this section to poke fun at the structure of the novel. There are six daughters. They line up in descending order of age. Oh yeah, that's true. There's six stories arranged and like a chronological scale that then descends like and he forgot one of them like i did <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, if you if you imagine the the vandeveld uh sisters as being like a metaphor for the novel it is funny that that frobisher can't remember one of them's name yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um 
And then one of them asks Frobisher if he, Frobisher knows Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Quite. Frobisher's like, oh, this is great. This person has a sense of humor and is telling a joke. But then he like slowly realizes to his horror that this person is serious and thinks that Sherlock Holmes is a real person. At, at the end of the section, he, he finishes by saying, the Vandevelds are six never-ending, ill-tuned harpsichord allegretti. <laughs> Which I think is a possible reference to a criticism for this book, you know, like six <laughs> yeah. never ending ill tuned kind of light pieces. But it's also another, uh, one of my favorite aspects of Frobisher in which he makes, he, 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 he likens things to musical sounds. And this one was quite, I mean, it's just, there's something about it. It's, it, it's so colorful. Yeah. There's a lot of musical, um, references and i mean some of them are very you know frobisher makes them very plain but then others are a little uh more subtle i was Mm -hmm. thinking about i don't know about you guys but like reading cloud atlas and especially over this time frame uh this is a very like artificial way to read a novel most people don't read novels one chapter at a time for like 12 weeks yeah Um, true but uh you know when uh i find myself ruminating on cloud atlas and like getting up in the middle of the night and going like, Oh, I just thought of something. And like <laughs> two weeks, two or three weeks ago, I wrote down on a post-it note, which I'm keeping on my bookmark. <laughs> I'm going to read the post-it note verbatim. Ayers equals Ayers spelled a I R S a song like lyrical instrumental movement. See also aria, but also like clouds. That's the text of my post-it note. Hmm. You know, I had, um, a, I had a similar instance one time. I was on a bus coming back from Pasadena, California, all the way to Arkansas. This was like a high school trip. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I wrote a post to myself. When I woke up the next morning, do you know what it said? It said, Shirley MacLaine equals devil, question mark. Okay, in my defense, John, I think my... <laughs> My post-it note about airs in this section is a little bit more apropos. So they're in Bruges and Eva and Robert climb a clock tower, the bell tower together and have this conversation. And he asks her why she changed, why she became a lovely person. And she says, oh, I met a foreigner, a lovely person. And basically goes about describing what Robert thinks is him. And right. in response to this, Robert begins to fall in love with her. I'm the Empress of Bruges, you see. Its citizens are my subjects. The Vandevelds are my jesters. I shall chop off their heads. Yes. And a beguiling is... creature, she really is. <laughs> and, and this view is her private Belvedere. I mean, Frobisher would find that attractive. <laughs> That's very true. Frobisher is attracted to power, right? Yep. He's attracted to heirs for heirs' powers. He's attracted to Eva for her powers. He's attracted, presumably, to Sixsmith for his powers. Mm -hmm. We unfortunately never get to see Sixsmith at the height of his powers, but we can assume they are formidable. He did win a Nobel Prize. But speaking of Sixsmith, we learn that... So Frobisher's been sending letters to Sixsmith, but doesn't seem to have been receiving very many back. Uh, And Frobisher asks, where the blazes is your reply? Yeah, he seems... Well, and it's interesting because this... I mean, there are eight letters in this section. 
most of them are super long and then there are two that are that are pretty short yeah Mm -hmm. and this is one of them where he's just like basically mad that Frobisher isn't talking to him mad that his father cut him off and like mad that or I said just said Frobisher isn't talking to him Frobisher is mad that Sixsmith isn't talking to him he's mad Mm -hmm. that his family cut him off and ultimately he's mad that he Robert Frobisher like doesn't have the fame and success that he deserves and uh at one point he said Adrian, his brother, would be alive if plucky little Belgium never existed. Somebody should turn this dwarf country into a giant boating lake and toss in Belgium's inventor. <laughs> Go on, name me just one fa- famous Belgian. So he, he's sick and tired of being in Belgium. Belgium. And he says, the end is what we want, so I'm afraid the end is what we're damn well going to get. There, set that to music. Timpani, cymbals, and a million trumpets. If you would be so kind. Yeah. And then he says, paying the old bastard with my own music, kill me. So clearly at this point, he's getting really frustrated at the fact that. Right. It's, it's, it's clear that Ayers is continuing to basically slap his name on Frobisher's own compositions. Then the next section we get is his continued infatuation with Eva talking about her a little more this is where he discovers we discovered that she wants to be an Egyptologist uh, that she has no musical skill because she prefers travelogue to Sir Walter Scott <laughs> um, and then this interesting interesting uh, whatever this could be because her laughter spurts through a blowhole in the top of her head and sprays all over the morning is she a whale yeah this is, I don't know it's an interesting composition this I actually this so this uh, short letter, which is right after the previous short letter where he's talking about the end of the world and how he hates the inventor of Belgium. This short letter is a love letter, and it is a really good one. <laughs> like, it's like a, it's one of this. I was reading this on the bus one morning, and I was just like beaming in my seat, going like, "Oh, this is so fun to read. This like fills my heart with so much joy." Um, <laughs> well, and. At, at the end of the day, that's what I like the most about the Frobisher section is that I really, I feel things in this section more than I have felt things emotionally in the rest of the book. And I'm bearing the lead a little bit here because it depends on the way that the section ends, which we're not to yet. But what we do get immediately after this happy love letter is the next one starts six Smith, divorces, very messy affairs, but heirs and mine was over in a single day. Frobisher has decided he's done. Yeah, we get the last major argument between the two of them. And Frobisher, you know, basically outright accuses Ayers of being washed up and having no more ideas and plagiarizing all of Frobisher's. And Ayers says, you know, I, I'm great and all the greats have their apprentices do it. How else could a man like Bach turn out new masses every week? Uh, also, if you leave, I will destroy your name. Nobody in polite society will ever hire you. Good luck you know, ever being able to get another job within music at all. I will destroy you. I knew you're sleeping with my wife, by the way. I permitted that. Blah, blah, blah. Like, then at the end of this, he says, you know, I require you to finish my work. Go ahead. Be angry. We're going to forget that this ever happened and come back when you're willing to play your part in my career. And if we've learned one thing about Robert, he is headstrong and he's not going to respond to this threat. He would rather dismantle his life than continue what he views as his kind of exploitation. At one point he says, 
Hanging myself from Zedelgum's flagpole was preferable to letting its parasite master plunder my talents a day longer. And I actually underlined that. It's parasite master. Because if you remember, this is what Dr. Goose tells Adam Ewing. Adam Adam Ewing has a parasite, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about this now is like, this is probably a direct reference because, you know, he's read this. So it's not like we're reading something that, you know, links back to Sanmi. Like the bit in the first section where Ayers has this midnight dream of this nightmarish cafe and the music he hears is, you know, like Frobisher should have no link to Sanmi or no no knowledge of it, that is. But I mean, in this case, mm-hmm. Frobisher does have knowledge of the past. And and right now we get another element of that because so Frobisher has decided so he's he's not gonna let heirs to to steal from him anymore and so he has decided he's done he's gonna leave it's middle of the night um he has found the second half of ewing's journal right and it's been it's been like holding up the bed frame in his room and so heirs or heirs i'm sorry frobisher decides he's gonna leave and he kind of creeps down to heirs room and he takes the, um, he has, oh, what is the gun, the, the gun. Yeah. The, the gun. And it's another, another musical note here. It emanated a bass note against my thigh. That's pretty great. And so he knows this gun has killed people. Can't, can't imagine why he's taking it, but he feels compelled to. And then he feels compelled to shoot heirs but he doesn't no, no, because no. not shoot it says an unaccountably strong urge to open his throat up yeah open his throat up, up. exactly enemy sleeping yep but he won't because and yeah like you said not shoot him but 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 open his throat but he he has this feeling of slitting another man's throat and who do we know in this book who has slit someone's throat? Zachary. Yeah, not someone that, not not like a past soul of Frobisher's, and not even not even a, a soul future. Of yeah. Not even a future soul of Frobisher's, but another being within this universe that hasn't taken place yet so what is the notion of time happening right now what even is this how does this soul comet and time work the flat circle okay (laughs) well and remember Autoa, uh you know hands a knife to um to adam ewing and just says listen like if you're not gonna cooperate with me you might as well just slit my throat right now oh dude i haven't even thought of that i hadn't thought of that either Yep. So there's, I mean, there's lots of throat slitting going on in uh, in this one. Well, and, and going back to Man. how he compares everything to like a musical reference, he even says when he's thinking about this, "What is the timbre of murder?" Mm-hmm. Now that sounds like a, the second Louisa Ray mystery. The timbre of murder. <laughs> the timbre of murder. <laughs> the second Louisa Ray mystery. Hillary V. Hush, get on that. Oh my God, we should write like fan fic for cloud atlas oh, fan oh, man. fiction can we just write cloud atlas 2 <laughs> electric boogaloo <laughs> and it's just a... cloud Al- it's, it's just m- like 
it's more of the sequels same. to all six of the stories all interlaced <laughs> but with like completely different like motifs and imagery <laughs> <laughs> all right the theme of cloud atlas 2 is um forgiveness i don't know it's not nuclear war <laughs> anyway maybe, uh. maybe we can make it be about contemporary times and it can be about misinformation and false news cloud cloud atlas 2 zachary's revenge oh dear Oh my. So anyway, he then stops by Eva's room just to like leave a note that says Empress of Bruges, your Belvedere, your hour. And then he makes his escape by like running out the off of the roof and like hops down a tree and like runs down the road, but then Mrs. Daunt like runs drives down the street and is like Are you running away? And he lies and said that his friend has been in an accident. So she drives him to Bruges, and he feels like he's finally escaped the heirses. Yep, and he he settles away in a hotel room for a while. A very nice hotel room. Of course, what should happen, but he becomes more and more obsessed with Eva, and he tries to find her, and he's kind of like stalking her around Bruges and sending her letters. I don't and... think he's kind of stalking her. I think he like is really, really stalking her. True. It says he tried to sneak into her school. Yeah, that's creepy. Um, and then what finally happens is he tries to sneak into a party at the Vandevelds. Um, he gets caught, and as he's getting injected, he's yelling, like, Eva, Eva. And she, like, it's that whole awkward party scene, you know, someone, like, confessing his love to somebody else who didn't even realize. And there's a man with her. Yeah, f- and he- Frobisher's freaking John Cusack with the boombox right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's a man with her, and he's like, who is this man? And she's like, he's my fiancé, the foreigner I told you about. He's Swiss, blah, blah, blah. And he realizes, like, she wasn't talking about him at all. And then what I find really interesting, like, he's being dragged out of this party, and he's just, like, rabid. And he says, all those cannibals feasting on my dignity. So that at mm, first when I read cannibals. this, yeah, I thought about, I thought back to Henry Goose picking up but no well no because remember henry goose is trying to find teeth on a from a cannibal's banquet hall so he can prove to a countess who cast him out of polite society that her dentures are made out of like cannibal you know refuse or whatever so henry goose is trying to take away somebody's dignity by means of cannibalism more or less and at the same time then we also have the cannibals the kona tribe from Slucius crossing and yeah, this is, you know, one of those moments where it just like branches out into multiple. Wait, are the Kona and... tribe cannibals? I don't think they're cannibals. They're, they're perhaps savages. No, I'm fairly certain that they're referred to as cannibals. Uh, okay, maybe. I didn't remember that, but uh, shall we recall that fabricants are Soylent oh, Green? Oh, yes. Soylent Green is people. <laughs> Soylent Green is people, and uh, all you people are eating people. This is interesting that you guys in this passage uh, highlighted the cannibalism part. I actually, this passage is like, you know, strongly reminded me of uh, Cavendish's, uh, you know, client throwing the guy off the balcony. Um, Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. He mm-hmm. he's he straight up like throws the dude off of the like down the stairs mm-hmm. and they've like both hurt themselves and he's like, Ha, I showed that guy. 
Uh, I think this is also, we've talked about, like, conspiracy theories and, like, fighting, like, the individual fighting a larger entity that has all the power. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think this section was very compelling to me from that angle, too, because there's a, you can read this whole section as, like, the mastermind Machiavellian airs, or you can read it as, like, a series of errors, basically. So you can basically read this as, like, Ayers is, like, the the mafioso, and he has, like, basically, like, sent Yacosta to, you know, have this affair with Ayers, or with Frobisher from the start, and he has basically, like, gotten Eva to, you know, to, like, lead Frobisher on and then, like, ignore him. Or the other thing that could have happened, right, is that Yocasta has the affair on her own and Eva is, in fact, during the the tower scene, attracted to Frobisher. But then uh, Ayers is able to, like, convince both of them to, like, get... You know what I mean? Like, we don't know where or if... Yocasta and Eva's loyalties change throughout this story. That's true, and kind of due to the epistolary nature of the novel, or the, I mean, this section, like it's entirely unreliable, unreliable narratively speaking, because Frobisher is just spouting his feelings, and he's kind of shown to be self-murdering. Um, speaking of self-murdering, so Frobisher has been feverishly working on the Cloud Atlas. Uh, the sextet, and uh, who is who is he talking to? The policeman. It's the policeman. So a- yeah, after this fight, Frobisher um, is basically told he has to leave the hotel. Um, but during this conversation, Frobisher shows him the sextet. Yeah, this is the musical policeman who lent him a bicycle back in the very first part of the first Frobisher section. Right, and. Uh, basically this policeman thinks that the sextet is brilliant and um, the result of this basically is that Frobisher realizes he has nothing left to live for. Because he's completed what he needed to complete. The last letter uh, to Sixsmith is basically a suicide note. And here's what I found interesting. Look at the date for this letter. This is December 12th, 1931. 12 12? Oh shit, that is... One more than how many sections are in this novel? Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. Frobisher oh, has okay. completed him himself. It ah. and chooses the twelfth of the twelfth to end things. And given how like there's this kind of I don't want to say numerology here, but you know there's kind of a a theme like that does not seem trivial to me. At the same time. What is the name of Frobisher's lover? His ultimate lover, not all of his side lovers. Six Smith. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, I looked it up and I could not find a specific etymology <laughs> for the name Six Smith, but we all know what Smith means. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this is someone who makes six? Or, I mean, creation out of six, you know? It's like six is creation and 12 is completion. I don't know. And I'm not trying to espouse like a hard numerological reading of this text because I don't think that it's meant to have that. But I think that these are these little things that are peppered in to kind of subtly reinforce like the interconnected nature of this structure. 
somewhere at some point, maybe in the past, maybe in the future, someone will write a like master's thesis, perhaps, that is just a numerological analysis of Cloud Atlas. <laughs> maybe they'll find something. I sincerely hope not. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's lots of numbers throughout the book. It's a complex work. It's who knows. Yeah, it's true. Ooh, but what about 1931? One plus nine plus three plus one is fourteen. What could that mean? There's this there's is a- the Trevi Fountain, and Trey <laughs> means three. There are three points yeah. on Poseidon's trident. So the last letter, first line is six Smith. Shot myself through the roof of my mouth at five a.m. this morning, with Vivian Ayers as Luger. But I saw you, my dear, dear fellow. How touched I am that you care so much. So basically, in having gotten Frobisher's letter that his life is over, Sixsmith went to Bruges to try and rescue him and, like, haunted the Bruges from Sixsmith's letter, or from Frobisher's letters. And Frobisher saw him. And talks about how he was watching him. Wait, and no, that didn't happen. Six, like, Frobisher's just being crazy and, like, hallucinating. No, I Wait, f- you guys, that's... you guys actually think Sixsmith was, like, hanging around in Bruges? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think I think he was just being crazy and hallucinating. No, I think Sixsmith traveled to Bruges to try and rescue Frobisher from himself. Yep. Frobisher saw him and, and chose not to. And then kind of says all the reasons why he loves him. You know, you're a brilliant blah, blah, blah. You've got a brilliant future. But in some fundamentals, you're a dunce. The healthy can't understand the emptied, the broken. He tried to list all the reasons for living, but I left him behind at Victoria Station back in early summer reason I crept back down from the Belvedere was that I can't have you blaming yourself for failing to dissuade me. You may anyway, but don't, Sixsmith, don't be such an ass. And, you know, then he says, basically, knew I'd never see my 25th birthday. I'm early for once. Choose suicide as a paced, disciplined certainty. Basically says why suicide isn't selfish. Rather, it's selfish to ask people to suffer so you can have them around. Then he says, don't let him say I killed myself for love. Sixsmith, that would be ridiculous. Was infatuated by Eva, but we both know in our hearts who is the sole love of my short, bright life. And then he says, along with this letter, I'm giving you the rest of the Ewing book, and I've left my manuscript. And the Cloud Atlas. And then something so striking, this line, Cloud Atlas sextet holds my life, is my life. Now I'm a spent firework, but at least I've been a firework. Yeah, as it turns out, the Katy Perry song was based on Cloud Atlas, Sextat. Yeah, yeah, she borrowed from Frobisher, and then and then we get we get uh, another reference to reincarnation. In fact, a character overtly stating that he does that he doesn't believe in in reincarnation, but but knows that he and Six Smith will meet again. Which I mean, they do kind of. Rome will decline and fall again. Cortez will lay Tenochtitlan to waste again. And later, Ewing will sail again. Adrian be blown to pieces again. And you and I will sleep under Corsican stars again. I'll come to Bruges again, fall in and out of love with Eva again. You'll read this letter again. The sun will grow cold again. Nietzsche's gramophone record. When it ends, the old one plays it again for an eternity of eternities. So Frobisher has it figured out. Oh, see, I I th- I read this uh, last letter very differently than you two. I think I I think this letter is like evidence of his insanity. Oh, um, I read. It I mean, quite. you're so you're, he, he you're re- so cynical. I, I, I read guess. It, I mean, I, like I read it as this sober and sincere, just like vomit of the truth. And 
it made me cry. Like this last letter made me cry. And it's the only part of the book that's made me feel like a strong emotion as compared to kind of an intellectual obsession. Certainly it's a very moving passage. And he does, I mean, there are portions of this letter which are very dispassionate and sort of very interesting reflections on like life, death, suicide, etc. But like, you know, the sort of shifts that he makes, especially in this last part, from um like the robo decline and fall again uh you know to his personal life with adrian being blown to pieces again um and then but then like he transitions from that to uh this idea that like his own life will like be played again and again as if it is like cyclical i don't know the whole thing doesn't um I don't know, it just doesn't, it, I, like, it seems like this sort of spir- spiraling uh, ravings of someone who is about to kill themselves, uh, which is not to say that that's not, I don't think he is insane, necessarily, but I think he he's, he's not being rational here. Well, perhaps we may interpret it that way, but I, I to me, what I got from, from that is Frobisher upon completing the cloud atlas sextet as he says this this is his life this was his like it's the sextet was everything and in so completing it he figured everything out and yeah maybe it sounds like rambling but maybe it also makes complete sense yeah almost like the last half of book seven of anna karenina i don't know i have not read anna karenina i don't know i mean like I like this last section. I thought it was really good. Um, but, you know, like, I find that this second Frobisher section is a kind of unraveling. It's that sort of house that Frobisher has built for himself, uh, you know, being torn down piece by piece, both by his own actions and by, like, Ayers and Eva and Jocasta. And I feel like... Um, I feel like a lot of the second halves of these stories have felt like this to me where, you know, the characters in the first half have constructed this world for themselves and this idea about who they are and, and what's going on. And then the second sections in the second sections that is sort of all like stripped away. Um, And I feel like with Frobisher, most of that stripping away happens within his own mind. I mean, this is why we, read it and discuss it because <laughs> we all have such different views that yeah like he i mean he starts this section right be like on the path to success essentially and then like destroys it for himself you know, right and like gra- you know like step by step like proceeds to you know a- out of like a sense of pride a, se- a sense of impatience what for whatever you know uh, delusions of grandeur he sort of he, you know, first he derails his business relationship with Ayers, then he derails his, uh, like, sort of uh, financial stability himself, then he derails his relationship with Jocasta and Eva, then finally he, like, you know, he takes his own life. Like, I think that, you know, it's very much a section that is about um, a person falling apart. Um in a really compelling way. I really I really enjoyed this section. 
Yeah, and I mean, remember at one point at the beginning he call or in the first section he calls himself Zettelgem's golden boy. Yeah. At the same time, he also said, "Chateau Zettelgem isn't the labyrinthine house of Usher." It seems at first, like that's an interesting comparison now in looking at his own self-destruction. That actually, the House of Usher reference actually stuck out for me as well as some, and in fact, um, I think Frobisher makes repeated reference to American works and authors, which I think is an interesting choice. Yeah, like, he, I think he, he he talks specifically about quotes Finn Finn. at one point. Yeah, um, which is a really for someone who hates the Belgians so much and seems to be, <laughs> uh, you know, pretty xenophobic as an as an Englishman, also, he uh, he tends to quote American things a lot. Well, one thing I find really interesting is in the first section, he talks about the fact that heirs loves Keats, his beloved Keats. Mm. Well, Keats died at the age of twenty five. Bum, bum, bum. So I think Frobisher in some ways is also like trying to or viewing himself as a Keats figure. Oh, of course. Frobisher's a genius. Yes. Uh, also, Keats' probably most famous poem was Ode to a Grecian Urn, which falls in line with the general references to antiquity in this chapter. Plus then the end when he talks about like Rome and like, I don't know, the Keats Shelley house is a very famous destination in Rome. I think I'm digging too deep here though, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna close off my, my commentary. But if you All right. I think we've I think we're pretty much at the end of, of what we're gonna get out for this episode. Yes. As as always, dear readers, there's much more to be discussed, but we only have so much time. Of course. Uh I'll I'll go quickly with my favorite line. It's when he's at the Van de Velde's house for dinner and it says, uh Madame Vandeveld, sorry, Mademoiselle Vandeveld, who also, no, Madame, that's right. Mme, Katie, is that Madame? Yeah. Oh, okay. M-L-L-E, is it Mademoiselle? Mm-hmm. Okay. So Madame Vandeveld, who also summered in Switzerland, gave laborious accounts of how Marie-Louise had been eulogized and barren as the flower of the Alps by Countess Slackjoski or the Duchess of some Dumpstadt. Yeah. <laughs> That was one of my favorite. And the best part, slack, too. like slack Josky. He puts in a tilde over the A in slack, like it's Portuguese, I guess. I don't know. And, and then, then, like, a random umlaut. <laughs> yeah, some Dumstadt. Like, <laughs> it just made me giggle. It was very Frobisherian, but also, I don't know, it's the kind of wordplay that I personally really enjoy. My favorite was a. It, it, it has to do with Frobisher's what I interpret anyway as his realization of, 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 of everything as he's working feverishly on the Cloud Atlas sextet. And he says, My head is a Roman candle of invention, Life's, lifetime's music arriving all at once. Boundaries between noise and sound are conventions I see now. All boundaries are conventions, national ones too. One may transcend any convention if only one can first conceive of doing so. Um, So that, I mean, that's, that's what I mean. He has conceived of transcending the boundaries. Has he transcended the boundaries between all of the comet souls? I think so. I mean, certainly he's expressing something of all of them. Um, My favorite part was uh, when the Vandevelds are... Uh, showing uh, Frobisher and Eva around Bruges and uh, Frobisher notes 
As dear old Kilvert notes, nothing is more tiresome than being told what to admire and having things pointed at with a stick. Um, <laughs> which I feel like, John, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like as New Yorkers, we're sort of always doing that. Like when, like even to each other, but especially to people from out of town, we're like, this is this building. It's interesting. And I like, I really think New York is an, is an interesting city and I love learning new things about it, but I can definitely sympathize with people who are like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's just this history of my life is I, I geek out about everything and so many people around me are just not capable of even really understanding how sincere and excited I'm being. Cause to them, like it's such a strange, weird thing that they don't have any reference to. All right. Well, that's about it for me. Um, should we, I don't have any favorite things. I'm too depressed to have a favorite thing right now. This has been <laughs> a tough week for us all. I think. Yeah. But uh, Katie, if you have a favorite thing, you can, you can talk about it if you want. Actually, I do. Please, uh, please, ha- please brighten our days with your favorite yeah, thing. I, I, I specifically thought of mentioning this favorite thing because this week has been so horrific. Um, I watched the other day. I hadn't seen it yet, and I watched Kubo and the Two Strings with some friends. And if you haven't seen that movie, you should watch it. It's. I mean, it's. It's kind of heartachingly sad but also really really beautiful um the story but also uh just visually it is striking uh everyone should watch kubo and the two strings do it it'll probably make you feel at least a little bit good well on that note then i had a um kind of a little movie night with friends at work that turned into me working while a movie was playing but it was still a nice way to kind of you know stay around the office, get stuff taken care of that I needed to get taken care of, but also kick back and relax a little bit. And uh, the movie we watched was Bring It On. (laughs) Honestly, it's a really good movie. And I think it's a message that we need right now. Like at the end of the day, that movie is about celebrating someone's success over your own because they both deserve it more than you, but because your success has been about writing on and using their labor. And I think that's a message we need more. We need to hear more and more of, you know, we need to celebrate the success of people we've taken advantage of. Uh, on that note, uh, on the day of the presidential inauguration, I went and saw Hidden Figures, uh, which is a great feel good movie that we all need right now. And it's a very important story. Agreed. The Indeed. O- the only thing and I w- Janelle Monet is awesome. I was literally saying the only thing I wanted out of that movie was more Janelle Monet. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I was I I mean I loved Janelle Monet's like music and her whole deal, but I was like, well, she's probably not a bad actress, but like I don't know, she'll be up to the challenge as a pretty great cast. And yeah, you're right, John. Like not only was she up to the challenge, I was like, why isn't Janelle Monet in this movie more? Also, Moonlight. She was so good in Moonlight and there was not enough. Oh, I haven't her. seen Moonlight yet. Oh, you have to go okay. see it. It's so Well, good. hopefully this year paves the way for Janelle Monet becoming like a film's leading actress cuz that would be great. Yes. Um, all right, well, join us next week as we re- f- as we finish Cloud Atlas and find out what happens in the last bit of the Pacific Diary of Adam Ewing. Whoa! <laughs> Whoa, guys, we're going to complete the cycle. Thanks again. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Sky. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening to Interlibrary Loan. You can find us online at illbook.club, and you can send us an email to hello at illbook.club. We do our best to respond to each email, so please let us know about your thoughts, and feel free to recommend any books you'd like us to discuss in the show. We are Interlibrary Loan on Facebook and at illbookcast on Twitter, and we love hearing from you. If you're not already a subscriber, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. We would particularly appreciate it if you would give us a rating in iTunes. It really helps us to show up in searches and reach a new audience. We also have a Patreon page where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help us grow our podcast. Through your generous support, we've been able to purchase many new pieces of equipment, helping us bring you a better sounding, more professional podcast. Nothing makes us more excited than a new pledge, and we greatly appreciate all the support we've received so far. Get your burps out. Seven point six. <laughs> is that seven point six on the Richter scale? Sorry. <laughs> you know that scale is logarithmic. I'm pretty sure you yeah, would seven feel points, a, you would a seven point six in Jersey City. Katie would probably feel aftershocks. Seven point six gonna fuck you up.